throughout this series, we've been talking about our stories. So we've been doing this series. This is the last week, like I said, the seventh week. Uh, so we've been doing it for a while, talking about how our life changes. My life changed when. And so we've been focusing on these stories that God has given us and kind of looking at our lives, looking at our stories through the paradigm of these life change moments, right? Like sometimes God change, we, we experience God's power in a new way, in a real way, when we go through really hard things. Sometimes we experience God's power in a new way, in a, in, a, in, a, in a more real way, when we go through wonderful things, right? And so each week we've been talking about different experiences that we've had, and we've been challenging you to say, like, think through your life change moments. Like, what does it look like for you? And then grab a camera, video camera, webcam, phone, whatever, and record yourself. Talk to it. And then go public with it. Like post it online and just see what happens. Post it on Facebook and see what happens. It's been so fun for me to see some of your stories as you've been doing that. It's powerful because people love to hear your story. Like people can relate to your story. And throughout the series we've been saying like your story is not just for you. Your story is God's story working in you. And so I don't know if it's fear that keeps us from sharing our stories, if it's, if it's guilt or, or, or what it is, but many times we keep them to ourselves and we miss out on a lot of what God can do through our experiences. So we've been talking about this week after week. The first week we said how our life changes when we pursue peace, when we choose peace. Sometimes conflict can be really, really hard, and we all deal with conflict, but many times we experience God's power in a different way when we act like the God of peace and we pursue peace on our own. Next week we talked about how our life changes when our secret comes out. Our secrets can be incredibly destructive, right? Many times we can hold on to these sinful secrets and we don't let anybody in and we imprison ourselves inside of those secrets and we said man your life could change what you might think is the worst day of your life when your secret comes out could end up being the best day of your life the next week we talked about how our life changes when somebody invests in us and uh, we looked at the example of Paul and Timothy in the scriptures and when when somebody invested in you how did that feel and are we investing in other people? Do we have people in our lives that we go, I see something in you. I see something in you that I think is special. And I'd like to open my life up to you and offer you a relationship with me. And let me just lean into you. Like, let me, I don't know everything, but let me just believe in you and be a part of your life and invest in you. It changes us. The next week we talked about how our life changes when we take a risk. And I love this one because that's what we're doing right now. We step out and we plant this barbering campus and it's a risk. We don't know what to expect, right? But amazing things happen when we do that. When, we sit, when we're praying and we feel like God is calling us to take a risk and then we have the courage to go, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to step into that risk and I'm going to trust you, God. Even when it doesn't make sense to other people, it's okay. But I trust you and I'm going to follow you. We get a chance to experience God doing amazing things when we step out and we take that risk. And then last week, we talked about loss. My life changes when I experience loss. And we had a chance to hear Teresa's story of her incredible loss of her daughter. It's powerful. It's crazy. But how she experienced God's power through that horrific tragedy. 
So tonight we continue on in the series and we talk about how our life changes when we accept grace. And, you know, Marcia was asking me, I was uh, kind of putting the final touches on things yesterday and I was talking to Marcia afterwards and she's like, you know, how's it, how's it going? And I said, you know, this, for whatever reason, I think I know why, this sermon of all of the series, this is the one that I feel like God has maybe challenged my heart the most with. Like as I think back, because it's, in, I'm going to talk about this, but we, like we forget, we forget like where we come from many times. And when I think back of what God has rescued me from, and I think what he's rescuing me for, man, it's just crushed my heart this week. So I hope, I hope that God will crush your heart in the same way. So um, we're going to dig into it. I have a little exercise as we get started here. Fun little exercise. Ready? This is the interactive portion of the sermon. Here we go. On a scale of 1 to 10, okay, 1 being not at all, 10 being a whole bunch. Here's the question. Just a, a, a nice little light question for us to start off. How sinful do you think you are? Scale of 1 to 10. 1 being not at all, 10 being extremely how sinful do you think you are? And don't like give me the church answer. Don't say, you know, I'm a one or I'm a two. Like, think about it. Be honest with yourself. Like, how sinful do you think you are? And this is kind of a weird way to start a sermon. I promise. I promise it's going to make sense here as we go along. Like, I, I don't know what, what, we, what you think when you think about that question. But for me, I tend to um, think of, of myself as somewhere in between the two extremes. And then I put faces at those extremes, right? So I think of a 10, somebody who's extremely sinful. And I think, uh, no, I'm just kidding, not you guys. I don't think you guys. But I think of somebody like Hitler, right? For whatever reason, when I, when I think of like evil, sinful, depraved, that's the person that comes to my mind. When I think of one and I think of like, the most sinless person that I know. I never knew her personally. But I think of Mother Teresa. You know, you might have somebody else in there. Billy Graham. I don't know who it is. But that's who I think of. And then I think of myself as somewhere in between there, right? So if Hitler's a 10 and Mother Teresa's a 1, I'm probably a 1.5, right? No, I'm just kidding. But if I'm honest, like when I, when I really think about it, I probably would say... Most, and I'm kind of embarrassed to admit this, but probably I'd say, maybe I'm like a four? I don't know. Like if Hitler's a 10 and Mother Teresa's a one, I think I'm probably more like Mother Teresa than I'm like Hitler, right? So maybe, I don't know, 4.5? I don't know. Like we tend to do that, don't we? Like in our culture, many times we don't think we're all that bad, do we? Like Hitler is bad. Ariel Castro, you guys remember who that was? The guy who abducted those three ladies, those three young girls in Cleveland and kept them as slaves for years. That guy was bad. The murderer is bad. The rapist is bad. They're tens, right? But I'm not that bad. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm not that. I'm essentially a good person. You know, most of the time, I got good intentions. Maybe not all the time, but most of the time I do. And I'm a lot better than that guy, right? Like, we compare ourselves to other people. And we say things like, and look at my upbringing. I mean, look at my parents or my lack thereof. It's a miracle that I'm not worse. Like, we find ways to justify ourselves. And see, what happens is, then we start to look at God a little differently when we do that. When we look at ourselves and we go, ah, I'm not that bad. Then we look at God and we go, yeah, God's cool. Like he, I mean, he seems angry a lot. But I think we're cool. I mean, I know, that, I know that God's holy. I know that God's perfect. But I'm pretty good too. In fact, 
he's kind of lucky to have me on his team, right? I'm a pretty good dude. I'm way better than my Uncle Willie. My Uncle Willie, that guy's a bad guy. I mean, that guy, that guy robbed the bank. He and God definitely are not friends. But me and God, you know, I, mean, I think we're cool. And when that's our perspective, when that's how we see ourselves, like when we never fully understand our sinfulness, the extent of our sinfulness, you know what happens? We never understand the extent of God's love and we never understand the extent of God's grace. So tonight, I want to dig into this a little bit. And uh, I want to challenge, I hope, I've been praying that God would challenge your heart the same way that he's been challenging my heart with this. Uh, This has been kind of an emotional week uh, for me. And so I'm excited to to maybe um, share some of that with you tonight. And we're going to do it by looking at a passage in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 7. So if you've got your Bibles, flip them open to Luke chapter 7. Again, if you don't have a Bible of your own, please grab one of those from the table back there. In the church Bibles, it's page 839, Luke chapter 7. We're going to pick up towards the end of the chapter, uh, page 839 in the church Bible. So this, this story, this history uh, at the end of Luke 7 is a really powerful passage that kind of is the culmination of the chapter. And the focus of the chapter, the focus of chapter 7 is on the question of who is this guy? Who is Jesus? Right? Who is Jesus? Who is this guy? And it's a good question. And it might be a question that some of you tonight are sitting here asking. Who is Jesus? Maybe, maybe like Melinda, like our video of Melinda, maybe you didn't grow up in church and you don't know who Jesus is. You know, like you're trying to figure that out. It's a good question to ask. And if that's the question you're asking, it's good that you're here. That's the question that they're asking in this chapter. And so the first 10 verses, 1 through 10 of this, uh, of this chapter, answering that question, who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is a guy who can heal. He's powerful. And tells a story of him healing this, this Roman soldier, this Roman centurion's servant by the power of his word. He says it, and this guy is healed. Who is Jesus? He's powerful. He's a healer. The next little chunk, verses 11 to 17, focus on the power of Jesus even more. Where this, this widow is having the funeral of her only son. He's literally dead in a coffin. And Jesus, who is Jesus? He's powerful. He raises people from the dead. And literally in the coffin, Jesus raises this widow's only son back to life. Who is Jesus? He's powerful. And then verses 18 to 35, some guy named John the Baptist, his disciples, John the Baptist, by the way, was Jesus' cousin. And he sends some of his disciples over to Jesus with a question to him. And the question is, who are you? Because are you the Savior? Are you the Messiah? And Jesus responds and he says, here's what I want you to do. Go back to John and I want you to tell him what you see. Tell him that you see the blind receiving sight. Tell him that you see the lame walking. Tell him that you see those with leprosy being cured. Tell him that the deaf are hearing again. Tell him that the dead are raised and the good news is preached to the poor. Go tell John that. That's what you need to tell him. And so they do. And then we get to verse 36. Who is this guy? Who is Jesus? Here we go. Verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. And so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. 
So this lady is un, unnamed. We don't really know a whole lot about her uh, other than she's absolutely broken. Absolutely, completely, totally broken. She was likely a prostitute. That's probably what Luke meant when he said that she lived a sinful life. And so as a prostitute, the perfume for her would have been a tool of her trade. And she really inappropriately, like this was not culturally acceptable for the time. She really inappropriately goes over to this religious leader's house. So she is a sinful woman, right? She inappropriately goes over to this religious leader's house, the Pharisee's house, because she was so, so desperate to see Jesus. She was so broken and she literally collapses at Jesus' feet and just weeps. And this would have been a humiliating act, right? I don't know if it would have been that different than if something like this happened today. Somebody comes to your house, you have a visitor, they come to your house, and she's literally at his feet weeping. Total humility, total desperation, inappropriate, but not caring at all about cultural etiquette. She saw herself as a 10. Remember our scale, 1 to 10? She saw herself as a 10, right? Just broken, totally broken and repentant on her part in this deep emotional pain and sadness, desperate for help, falling at the feet of Jesus. And then this act of honor to Jesus. This is fascinating to me because you wonder what she was thinking. Like, what did she know about Jesus? You know, she anoints his feet with this expensive perfume. It was probably the nicest, most expensive thing that she had, probably her prized possession, and she pours it out on Jesus' feet. It's tough to know what she, what she knew about Jesus at the time, other than he is a man of God who is in a position that he could help her. So she's weeping at his feet. She's pouring perfume, anointing his feet with the perfume. And then look at the response, verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. This Pharisee, we later find out that his name's Simon. This Pharisee Simon, he looks at this woman and he sees a 10 too. That's how he sees her. He sees a sinner. He sees a bad person. The thing that she does behind closed doors is shameful. That's how Simon sees her. And then he thinks about how Jesus responds to this sinner. And he comes to the conclusion that because Jesus doesn't immediately cast her aside and condemn her, he must not be sent from God. He must not be. There's no way he could be. He can't be because God's holy. God's righteous. God doesn't associate with sinners. He doesn't associate with tens. He doesn't associate with prostitutes. That's how he understood God. So Jesus tells Simon a story. Look at verse 40. Jesus answered him. He said, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Jesus said, two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, which 500 denarii is like 20 months wages. So that's like over a month and a half of salary. So that's a big chunk of money, right? One owed the money lender 500 denarii. The other owed 50, which is about two months wages, which not a small sum either. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Then Jesus asked Simon a question. He says, now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. Jesus said, you judge correctly. Then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, he said, do you see this woman? 
So he's looking at the woman. He's talking to Simon. He says, you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and she wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, Simon, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love is shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, he looks at her, I can imagine her looking right in her eyes, your sins are forgiven. And this kind of freaks out the other guests at the, at the dinner party. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this? Like, who is this guy? They're asking the question, who is this guy who even forgives sins? And Jesus says to her, he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I love this passage. I love seeing how Jesus interacts with people. Because it's so different. It's so countercultural to what was going on then. And it's so countercultural to many times what goes on right now. This is such a powerful example of Jesus' love and, and like God's economy, God's, God's order of things, what God thinks is important and what God thinks is less important. So I have some questions for you. We'll see how well you were listening. Ready? I got some questions for you. First question, what number does this woman see herself as in terms of her sinfulness? Ten? Agree? I think so too. I, th- I think she sees herself as a ten. Completely desperate. No hope of her own. Second question. What do you think Simon the Pharisee sees her as? Ten? You agree? I, I agree. I think he sees her as a ten as well. Next question. What do you think Simon sees himself as? I think a one. I, I think he sees himself as Mother Teresa, right? I know Mother Teresa wasn't alive back then, but I think he sees himself as Mother Teresa. I think he sees himself as sinless. Next question, what do you think the woman, the sinful woman, the prostitute, sees Simon as? It's a trick question. I don't think she cares. I don't think she cares. I don't think that she's sitting in judgment of anyone because she realizes she's a 10. And she is so focused on her pain and her problems and her hopelessness. She is overwhelmed by her sinfulness and she's desperate for a way out. So she's willing to humiliate herself, literally humiliate herself to find peace and forgiveness. I don't think she could care less if Simon was righteous or unrighteous. I think she was so overwhelmed with her unrighteousness. All she could think about was going to Jesus and asking for help, for for his help. Last question. Which one of them does Jesus accept? Is it the one who sees himself as a one or the one who sees herself as a ten? It's the ten, right? It's the woman. That's the one that, she, that he accepts. See, guys, this is so, 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 have I said so enough? So, 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 so important for us to get. Simon the Pharisee has the wrong view of himself. He sees himself as a one. He's not a one. He has completely the wrong view of himself. And what it does is it, com- it caused him to completely miss who Jesus is and, who Jesus, and what Jesus came to do. His high view of himself, I'm a one, caused him to completely miss who Jesus was and what Jesus came to do. 
This is what seeing ourselves the wrong way can do for us. He gave himself the wrong view of Jesus and the wrong view of what's most important to God. See, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Simon's high view of himself basically led him to see himself as equal to Jesus. His high view of himself led him to see himself as equal to Jesus. Jesus is a good man. I'm a good man. Jesus is a religious leader. I'm a religious leader. I'm a Pharisee, for goodness sake. Jesus knows a bunch of scripture. Oh, jeez. I got, I got half of the Bible memorized. Jesus was a good teacher. They call me rabbi. I think he see, saw himself as equal to Jesus. And how did this high view of himself cause him then to respond to Jesus? Well, at best, it caused him to respond to Jesus as his equal. At worst, it caused him to respond to Jesus as someone less important than himself. Simon didn't even offer Jesus the basic cultural courtesies of the day. He didn't give him any, any water to wash his feet. No. He didn't give him, you know, a welcome kiss, which would have been like a respectful handshake in today's culture. He didn't do that. He didn't give him oil for his head, which would have been like a way for Jesus to freshen up from his journey. He didn't do any of that. Why? Because he saw himself as pretty okay. I'm a one. I, I, I got it all together. I, I'm, I'm pretty great. He probably gave his 10% to the synagogue, you know. He was religious. He knew his Bible. He was put together. He didn't need much help, let alone forgiveness from someone who was greater than he was. He was already great in his eyes. He was a one in his own eyes. But this unnamed prostitute wasn't. She wasn't. She understood her sinfulness she had an accurate view of herself. And having an accurate view of herself, she had no choice but to fall at Jesus' feet and violently weep, desperate for forgiveness, desperate for grace. And she was the one, not Simon, not the Pharisee, she was the one who actually received forgiveness. She was the one who actually received grace. They both got what they wanted. Simon got what he wanted. He, he didn't want forgiveness. He didn't want grace. He saw himself as equal to Jesus. They both got what they wanted, but only one of them got what they needed. I remember when um, I was in high school, I think, I think almost every night... I would kneel, at, when I went to bed, I would kneel at the side of my bed and I would pray. And this is before I was a Christian, right? Like I went to church every week. I went to a Christian school. I prayed every night, right? I knew a lot of things about God, but I wasn't a follower of Jesus. I knew a lot of things about him, but I didn't know him, right? And so I remember every night kneeling down next to my bed and praying and sometimes just being honest with God and admitting to him that I wasn't ready to stop doing some of the, the wrong things that I knew I was doing. Like I knew, I knew they were wrong, but I remember praying to him saying, I'm just not ready to stop doing them. And I think in my mind, like as I think back, I think in my mind I, could, I, I would justify them, you know? Be like, it's not that bad. God. I'm not that bad. I mean, I'm not as bad as my friend Ben. I'm not as bad as my friend Brett. 
Those guys are bad guys. I mean, I go to church every week, God. I go to a Christian school, God. I pray at the side of my bed, God. And so I started to think about, like, if, if, I were, if you were to ask me that question on a scale of one to, 1 to 10, where do you see yourself? I think at that time I probably would have said I'm like a 3. I'm not perfect. I'm not that bad, right? And I, and I think I would have thought that 3 is probably pretty acceptable to God. And it's interesting, this is a rabbit trail, I won't go down, but it's, it's interesting as I think back, like my view of God, so in one, in one sense, I'm like, I'm not that bad, I'm probably a three. Three's probably acceptable to you guys. But when I thought about God and what he thought of me, I was also very afraid of him. Like I feared judgment of him. It's fascinating. That's another sermon another time. But for me, it was at a big conference when I got it. And some of you have heard my story, and so I'm not going to get into all the details, but I remember being at this conference, just being absolutely overwhelmed by my sinfulness and my unworthiness. Absolutely overwhelmed. Like, like thinking of who God is and how big and holy and righteous and just and powerful he is and how so far less than that I am. I remember just being so overcome, like crying, weeping, being so overcome with my unworthiness and my sinfulness, but while simultaneously, this is so weird, simultaneously being overcome by God's sheer love for me and the fact that in my unworthiness, in my sinfulness, he loves me and he would offer me forgiveness. Like, it's so weird, like, like being so low and being so high at the same time. It's like you hit rock bottom and at rock bottom you realize that it's the most beautiful, life-giving place that you could possibly be. I found grace that weekend. But it wasn't until I recognized my own sinfulness it wasn't until it changed my life forever. I never thought I'd be doing this, by the way. Changed my life forever, but it wasn't until I recognized how unworthy and how sinful I was. You, do you know what grace is? Like I've, I've been using that word. Do you know what grace is? I've heard, a definition I've heard a lot that I think is a good definition is unmerited favor. You may have heard that before. Grace is unmerited favor. And I think that's a good definition, you know. Like un- unmerited, it's not something that we merit, that we earn, but it's something that's given to us and it's God's favor, right? It's, it's his goodness, it's his blessing. Another definition I like, and this is maybe a little bit more of a Christian definition, is I don't get what I deserve, which is punishment for my sin. I don't get what I deserve, but instead I get what I don't deserve. God's favor, God's blessing, right? God's relationship. I don't get what I deserve, but I get what I don't deserve. See, this is so important. I don't think that we could really understand God's love and God's grace, what we don't deserve, until we really understand our sinfulness and what we do deserve. Let me ask you a weird question. I may throw you off a little bit, but I think it's an important question. Do you ever spend any time really considering and remembering how much you've sinned in your life? Yeah. (laughs) You ever spend time thinking about that? Those are the kind of things that we want to forget. 
right? Like it's uncomfortable for us. It causes us to squirm a little bit. I don't like to think about those things. I don't like to think about the ways in which I've messed up, the ways in which I've dropped the ball. I don't mind remembering the ways other people have done that, especially when it hurts me. But I don't like to remember the ways in which I've done it myself. Guys, I'm not saying, listen, hear me here. I'm not saying that we should dwell there, especially if we've chosen to follow Jesus. But we cannot forget, we cannot forget what he's rescued us from if, you've, if we've chosen to follow him. It's so easy to forget. It's so easy to forget all of the rotten things that we've done, all of the bad decisions that we've made. Listen, don't let yourself forget. Don't let yourself forget. Those memories keep us honest. Don't dwell there. But those memories keep us honest and those memories keep us humble, especially when we're relating to other people. And they help us remember the extent of God's love and the extent of God's grace. We've got to remember where we came from. See, here's what I know. I'm embarrassed to admit this, but it's true. Too many times, I'm the Pharisee. Too many times I'm the Pharisee in this story. Too often, I forget where I've come from. And I minimize my sin. I minimize the wrong things that I've done. And I start to compare myself to tens. I think I'm not as bad as that guy, right? I'm not as rotten as what he is. I've come a long way, you know? And then in very subtle but very dangerous ways, I start to think, now I'm a whole lot like Jesus, I mean, I I used to be kind of bad, but I'm not so bad anymore. Now, I'm a pretty good guy, like Jesus was. Now, I read my Bible most days, and I got some scripture memorized, like Jesus does. Now, I teach others how to follow God, like Jesus did. I'm not too bad. You know, I'm I'm figuring this out. I'm figuring this Christianity thing out. My life's pretty put together. Jesus is pretty lucky to have me on his team. If I'm honest, guys, too many times I can slip into that. And I can start thinking a little bit more highly of myself than what I deserve. While all the while, I'm nothing more than a prostitute. I'm a 10. I'm a 10. Even now, as a guy who's been a follower of Jesus for the last 20 years and a pastor in God's church, I'm a 10. The only thing that I deserve from God is his wrath, his rejection, his judgment, and eternal suffering and separation from him in hell. I'm the prostitute. I'm the murderer. I'm the adulterer. I'm the liar. I'm the dirty politician. I'm the pervert. I'm the adulterous father. I'm the promiscuous mother. I'm the betrayer. I'm the corrupt boss. I'm the hypocrite. I'm the egomaniac. I'm the heretic. That's who I am. Paul said it this way, the Apostle Paul, he said, I'm the chief of sinners. That's Paul, the guy who wrote most of the New Testament. He said, I'm the chief of sinners. And you know what? He was. And so am I. And so are you. 
And guys, listen, until you get that, until you understand that, you will never understand just how much Jesus loves you. And you will never understand the extent of his grace poured out for you as his blood was shed on the cross. It's painful. It's painful to think about the rotten things that we've done, the ways in which we've hurt people and the ways in which we've hurt God. But until we recognize that we're the chief of sinners, we'll never understand his love and we'll never understand his grace. In Romans 3, same guy, the Apostle uh, Paul, he, wrote, he, pulled, he quotes a bunch of Old Testament passages and he gives us like this small glimpse into the collective heart of humanity, of which you and I are, com- of, are included. Here's the tendency of our hearts, ready? This is what Paul writes. He says, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Any of that sound familiar? When I'm honest with myself, it does to me. Those are the people that Jesus came for. Those are the people that Jesus suffered for. Those are the people that Jesus died for. It's us. We're pathetic. We're lost. We're so far gone. But here's the thing. He doesn't leave us there. He doesn't leave us lost. He doesn't leave us so far gone. Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on to give us the best news ever. This is what he says, just a few verses later. Verse 21. He says, But now, apart from the law, the, from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. So apart from things we do, a righteousness from God that we can receive has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. We're all the same. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. That's our part. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. That's a lot of words. What does it all mean? What well, means that Jesus came to pay a debt that he didn't owe for those of us that owed a debt that we could never pay. Jesus came to pay a debt that he didn't owe. He was the only one who didn't owe it. But he came for us. Unworthy, sinful us who have this debt that's so huge we could never pay it. Guys, I don't know like where you're at tonight, like I, I see your eyes, I wish I could see your hearts. Like I wish I could see what was going on inside. I don't know where you're at. I don't know where your heart is. I don't know where your understanding of Jesus is. You know, you may be sitting here going, who is this guy? I, I hear these things about him. I don't understand. Who is he? That may be you. I don't, under, I don't know, like when you think about your sinfulness, where you fall on that scale. But I beg you to consider this question. How big of a debt do I have? such an important question. 
how big of a debt do you have? Do you see it as a one or a two or a three or an eight or a nine? Or do you see yourself as a ten? Do you see yourself as a chief of sinners? Jesus said, he who's been forgiven little loves little. But guys, he who recognizes how much they've been forgiven of, man, they love a lot. Because they understand the extent of God's love for them. They understand the extent of God's grace for them. And then they love him with everything that they've got. Listen, if you've not experienced it already, if you've not experienced his grace already, your life will change forever when you accept grace. But it will not happen until you deal with your sin. Until you look objectively at your life, at your heart, and honestly before God, you recognize that you're a 10. That you're the chief of sinners, just like I am. And even so, He loves you. In your rottenness, in your bad decisions, in your heartache, in all of the questions that you have, He loves you. And if you just offer it up to Him, fall down at his feet at the foot of the cross and be broken before him and say I got nothing I have nothing to offer you but I trust you your life will be changed forever forever